All right, 1 John chapter 5. We have come to the end of the book of 1 John, and hopefully by now you have achieved a good sense of the flow of the letter and the themes in general. Uh, 1 John has so many great little memory verse type verses in it that uh, we can miss the whole book, but it all flows together. And that's really the point of teaching the Bible the way that we do here is I would rather you understand the book of 1 John and get used to a solid method of interpreting and applying the Bible than remember any specific point that I make. And that, that's really what this is. It's training so that you can read the Bible and understand it for yourself. So hopefully you've, uh, you have a better grasp of 1 John after tonight than you did before, even if you don't understand everything, because I know I certainly don't. We're going to hit another one of those weird issues uh, that came up a couple times in this book tonight. But as I've been saying, John's main point is drawing very sharp distinctions between those who are of the world and those who belong to God. And he's made that distinction over and over again. And I I didn't count, but you probably could go in and make a good long list of all the places he says, those who are saved do or don't do X, and those who are not do or don't do X, or believe or don't believe, or you, you get the idea. He does that a lot. And then he calls us to maintain that distinction, but not just to maintain the distinction, but to enjoy the distinction. Not that we're better than them, but because we are, are, we have the truth. We know what's real and what God has actually done. We have benefited from the work of the Messiah, and that should bring us great joy. And we're, of course, not saved just so that we can be separate from the world, but that we can go back into the world and save souls. And the book of 1 John is really about a clarifying that. And tonight we're going to come to the end, and John is going to summarize why he's written. Remember we did this early on in the book. We looked at all the different places where John says, this is why I have written. Well, we're going to come to the last one, and he gives yet another call to maintain the distinction between those who are of God and those who are not. Got a really great triumphant statement of our salvation in this passage. There's so much pressure on us to dull the edges of Christianity. Really, that's how, that's how we are as a people. We like to take the guts out of most important things and say, well, we don't need all of these really significant things. We can just keep the trappings. And we really do this to everything. It's not just religion. But we need to make sure that we don't do that. We cannot. When we know who we are in Christ, and that's really what we're going to discuss tonight, is who we are, what Christ has done for us. You, you can't compromise that because then you're compromising the assurance and the boldness and the joy and the hope that God intends you to have. So I hope that as we come to the end here, you will fully embrace your status as a child of God and that it will lead you to take bold action, to take the kinds of action that you would take if you really were the son or daughter of God, because guess what? You are. So let's go ahead. It's going to be verses 13 through 21, 13 to the end. And we're just going to go verse by verse, starting with verse 13. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So in there you get a purpose of why he wrote. You also get the intended uh, audience of the letter. This is for those who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? So that they may know they have eternal life. 
That's one of the important purposes of this letter. Now, the last section, if you remember, was all about the certainty of God's testimony. Remember we talked about the three-part testimony, the water, the blood, and the spirit, and how if we accept the testimony of God, we have to accept, or the testimony of man, we have to accept the testimony of God, two or three witnesses. You remember all that? He was teaching us about how we can know that what God has said is true. And he says, now, why would I take the time to write that? So that you can know that you have eternal life. I'm trying to convince you because, as he said, there are people that he called back in uh, chapter 2 antichrists. Not the final antichrist, but people who are walking in the same spirit and the same attitude that he will have. And they've been causing confusion, we can assume, to whoever John was initially writing to. And he goes, all right, listen, guys, I'm going to lay down real clear for you. This is who belongs to God. This is who doesn't. This wasn't to rebuke his readers as saying, you guys don't belong to God. You got to get it together. That's closer to what Galatians or 1 Corinthians was all about. First John is saying, hey, I'm reminding you about what's true so that you can be assured in who you are. This is very similar to how John ended his gospel. If you read John 20, 31, the very end of the book of John, he says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So you see the connection? He says, I wrote this gospel so that you can believe in Jesus and believe that you have eternal life. Now in the epistle, 1 John, he says, I wrote this so that you can know that you believe in God and know that you have eternal life. He's writing to confirm and assure what we have come to believe through the gospel. So we've talked a lot through this book about assurance of salvation. And that really is a tricky thing because we want that subject to be nice and neat and embroidered around the edges. That's really not how scripture describes it. In a lot of places, when Paul describes assurance of salvation, he describes it as binary. You either are or you're not. There are places like in Hebrews or other parts of Paul who, uh, where they say salvation is this, this ongoing process that will be completed on the last day. And you need to make sure that you are in that and you are pressing towards the goal. First John is even more confusing because he does both. He talks about how, yes, you are saved. Don't let anybody tell you different. But then he also says, now walk in love and righteousness. That's how you know. So he ties together these ideas of faith and works, which the New Testament does as a whole. But uh, I, I, I want to draw attention to that because assurance of salvation is such a loaded topic because it affects people that we know and we love, right? It, it's never, what does the Bible say? It's always, yeah, but I have a cousin who, and that's not a bad thing to say. You're concerned for the people you love. But what John has been teaching us is that it is a, a, a I don't want to say a combination, but it, it is the union of of definite, once-for-all confidence in Christ Jesus combined with the ongoing walk of salvation that leads to our future hope. There's a past, present, and future aspect to salvation. And I want to make sure that we're not playing word games where if a passage seems to talk about the importance of perseverance, that we don't turn it into a passage that's all about you know, security. And if there's a passage about security that we don't turn it into a passage about the need to persevere. Do you understand? This is why we teach through the Bible and let each passage speak for itself. So I wrote these things so that you may know. What's the point of this passage talking about assurance of salvation? God wants you to be confident in your salvation. Do you understand that? God wants you to be sure of your salvation. He put an entire book in the Bible so that you could know for sure. And to summarize what John has done, one commentator split it up this way, and I think it was perfect, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat it. 
John the Apostle has grounded our assurance of salvation in three things throughout this book. And this is what I mean when I say John has blended uh, the past, present, and future aspects of salvation for assurance. Number one, belief. Chapter 5, verse 1 said, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So the answer to the question, how do I know I'm saved? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Yes, then you've been born of God. The second thing he ties it to throughout this book is righteousness. Back at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So if the question is, how do I know I'm saved? John would say, do you keep his commandments? That's how you know. And the third thing was love. Chapter 4, verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. How do I know I'm saved? Is your life characterized by love? Belief, righteousness, and love. Do you see how John has taken what you could say the subjective and the objective aspects of salvation and assurance and tied them together? Belief is a very objective thing. It's, I believe, it's, it's once for all, God is is with me. I belong to the Lord. Righteousness is more subjective because you, you can see it right in front of you, and it's either happening or it's not. Love is one of those things that's kind of in the middle, but I, I, I want to show you this because assurance of salvation is often made a, a simple thing. It is in one sense, but also uh, John gives us a very nuanced approach to assurance of salvation, but we should know that God wants us to be assured of salvation. If you believe in the Lord, if you obey his commandments, and if you love God and love people, then you are assured of salvation. And I would maybe add to that, don't let yourself, don't put such a high standard on yourself of what these things should look like that you could never, ever achieve assurance of salvation. I believe, but sometimes I doubt. Okay, so what? Well, I, I'm righteous, but every now and then I sin. Okay, John talked about that too. I love people, but sometimes I don't want to love people. Okay, you see how you could really twist yourself into knots? John is trying to give us objective, attainable, obvious things for us to be assured of salvation. And we should read through this book and be like, yes, God is with me. God is in me. And besides, I wouldn't want to do these things if God wasn't working in me anyway, right? So verse 13, I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. Verse 14 and 15 He's going to kind of turn into, why do we need assurance of salvation? Isn't it better to be lived in, live in constant trepidation, afraid that we might not make it past the pearly gates? No. Why? Verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request we have asked of him. This is one of my favorite topics in the entire Bible because it's so I, I want to say permissive, but not permissive in the sense of sin, but like open permission to petition God. John immediately ties confidence of salvation. Why would we want that? So that we can have confidence to pray. If you are confident in your salvation, you will pray without fear. You ever been afraid to pray? Sounds weird, but it's absolutely been the case for me before. When you're stressed out and you're fearful of your own salvation, you're fearful that your sin has somehow separated you from God again, something that Jesus said would never happen, you, you cower before God and you don't want to open up that conversation of prayer because you feel like the minute you're in contact with the Holy Spirit again, you're going to be full of judgment or, or fear or wrath is going to come upon you. If that's happening to you, know that God does not want it to be that way for you and that God is never going to drive you away from prayer. 
That's not how God rolls, right? God doesn't come to you and intimidate you to pray. Whenever anybody got a glimpse of God in the Bible, first words out of God's mouth were what? Do not be afraid. So if you think that you're in communion with the Holy Spirit and it's making you terrified and afraid, it might not be the Lord that you're talking to. That's why we study the word. And we say, God, I'm going to trust that you are a God who casts out fear with your great love, so I'm not going to be afraid. This is why John has been talking about assurance of salvation. He says, I want you guys to be full of faith to pray. The Apostle John talks more about confidence in prayer than pretty much any other New Testament writer. I think of all the things that John contributes to the New Testament. You know, Paul wrote way more than John did. John wrote just a little bit. I mean, obviously, the book of Revelation, right, the completion of prophecy— he, he gives the strongest indications and the strongest statements of Jesus' deity. I would add to that John's teachings about prayer. It is a major component of the Apostle John's writing. Look at what he says. This is the confidence we have. Why do you need to be assured so that you can have confidence? For what? That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He says, if you ask according to God's will, then you will be heard. And then in verse 15, he says, and if he hears us, we know that we have what we have asked. That's the problem, right? You could say the problem is, does God hear me when I pray? This was a big deal throughout the Old Testament. Remember uh, Elijah, when Elijah was on the Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal? You know, every time you watch like an old creepy movie or like some fantasy where there's like you know magic and this kind of stuff and they have those really creepy rituals where like you know they're summoning the gods and everyone's like afraid and creeped out and stuff that's kind of what was going on on top of this mountain they were you know cutting themselves and wailing and moaning and chanting hundreds of prophets at the same time but nothing happened remember they were trying to call down fire from heaven they kept on going and kept on going weeping and mutilating themselves and wailing and moaning and chanting and playing their songs right and Hours they do this, and nobody shows up, and then Elijah starts talking smack. He goes, hey, hey guys, I, I think you should yell louder. I don't think your God can hear you. It's kind of funny. I imagine that there was like maybe one guy that was really getting into it, like yelling, and Elijah's like, whoa, bro, yell louder, why don't you? You know, and, or he goes, you know, maybe, maybe Baal's on vacation. You want to do this another time? No, maybe he's in the toilet. You want to wait a little bit? That's in the Bible. Elijah said that. Maybe he's... Uh, he's He's going to the bathroom, and that's why your God can't hear you. You read through the book of Isaiah and the other prophets, they're like, why would you worship an idol? It's got ears, but it can't hear you. It's got hands, but it can't touch anything. It's got eyes, but it can't see. When we were kids, we were growing up, we were watching those, um, those really long, like, dual VHS tapes of, like, Moses, Abraham, Jacob, right? And it has this scene with Jacob and Laban where Laban goes to pray, but Rachel had stolen the household idols, remember? And uh, my uncle... Ta taught this point very well when I was a little kid. Just through this one little phrase, he goes, isn't it a bummer when your gods can be stolen? <laughs> like, no, bring back my God, right? This is a huge point in the Old Testament, is that your God can't hear you. So there's one true and living God, but here's the question. Why would he hear you? Everyone kind of assumes that I'm somebody and God should hear my prayers. Why? You're full of sin. You've been living your life in rebellion, and you want to come and talk to God? You can't even talk to the president. You can't even hardly talk to the manager of, like, a McDonald's if you want to. I want to talk to your manager. Mm, I don't know. Or you're calling somebody. Let me put you on hold for 30 minutes. So, but you think you're going to march up and talk to God? Why would he listen to you? Because God hears Jesus Christ. 
That's what Jesus said when he was, he was praying in the temple and uh, in the book of John, I believe, where he says, God, I thank you that you have heard me. Oh, this was with Lazarus. It wasn't John. He says, God, I thank you that you have heard me. Now, God, I know that you always hear me, but I'm praying this out loud so that everybody around me can know that you always hear me. That was one of the characteristics of Jesus's prayer ministry. God always heard him. So because you and I are in Christ Jesus, we have the right to be heard in God's presence. Like Esther couldn't just waltz into the throne of the king, but because she had the favor of the king, she was allowed access. Same thing, you and I, the Lord has extended the scepter to us and we are allowed to come into his presence. Now, how many things does Jesus receive that he asks for? Say all of them. Now, if you are accepted into the presence of God in the same way that Jesus is, how many things that you pray for should you expect to receive? Same answer, say all of them. Jesus said in John 14, verses 13 through 14, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And I love that in verse 14, he repeats himself without the qualification about the glory of God. He says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it, period. Why do I say that? Because we, we see where he says, ask anything that the Father may be glorified. And we immediately focus on the God may be glorified part. Now, see, now this whatever would bring God glory, that's what we pray for. Now, listen, I will say this. Of course, we need to take the time to say that you are not promised answers to frivolous requests. Right? All things must be according to God's will. James, in James 4, 2 through 3, says you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. All right? However, if you read a verse like 1 John 5, 14, where it says that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And the part that you focus on is where it says, according to his will, you are missing the point of that passage. You're missing it. Does it have to be according to God's will? Yes, but what is this? This is an invitation to ask and receive. It's not an invitation to a divine guessing game where you're playing battleship with God and you're praying like, B3, oh, that wasn't God's will. I don't get that one. Let's find out what it is. That, what's the point of prayer anyway at that point? Well, we can't change God's mind. Oh, really? Have you read the Bible? Book of Genesis. God's. I'm going to go destroy Sodom. And Abraham says, no, Lord, what if there's 50 righteous? Okay, fine. 50 righteous, I won't. All the way down to 10. What was the problem? There were only one righteous, and his name was Lot. Well, what about with Moses? God says, Moses, you hang out here. They're worshiping a golden calf. I'm going to destroy Israel and start over with you. And Moses said, no, Lord, please don't. Don't, please, just take me instead of them. God said, fine, Moses, but this is going to be hard for you because these people are stubborn. And God, that's why Israel was allowed to continue. The whole point of praying is to partner with God in what he's doing. Why would God say, ask anything and I'll give it to you? Uh, except for all the things that I, I decided I wasn't going to do anyway. The whole point of prayer is to receive, you guys. Does it have to be according to God's will? Yes, it does. Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane and said, Father, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will but yours be done. The cup didn't pass from Jesus. He drank it dry. But Jesus also said, I receive everything that the Father gives to me. We shouldn't focus on those moments where God has to give us a gentle no. We need to focus on the incredible permission that God has given us, especially because our problem is not that we ask for way too many frivolous things. It's that we're intimidated to ask for great things because we're afraid that God won't answer. 
You should be as confident of the answers to your prayers as Jesus was. When you come before God and you pray and you ask him for something, don't feel like you have to bargain and convince God. This is why we need assurance, isn't it? Because John's like, I want you to be so convinced of who you are in Christ that when you come in and pray, you will receive everything that you ask for. That is what is promised to you. Our problem, though, as I said, is that we don't pray. We don't pray and ask for crazy things. Number one, we don't pray, period. Prayerlessness is a problem in the church. Always has been, and I would venture to say always will be, because you have an enemy that hates you and wants to pull the plug on your prayer life. But then when we do pray, we hedge our prayers in so much because we're afraid God will be embarrassed. You ever had your prayer like shot blocked in a prayer meeting before? You ever like pray for somebody and they're going to, we're going to pray for, you know, for Edwin because Edwin is, needs healing. And I just made up the name, right? Edwin needs healing and his, you know, he's got whatever problem. He's got cancer. So we're going to pray for Edwin. And you just are, are feel really led of the Lord to pray. And you pray a really bold prayer. God, we pray that you would heal Edwin. You would drive the cancer from him, that he would be healed today and that there would be no more cancer. And there would be a testimony to your glory. And then some, some wiser than you saint comes behind and like, you know, takes all the edges off your prayer. Now, Lord, we know you don't always heal. We know that a lot of times you want us to suffer because that's your will. So God will be happy with whatever you do. What is that? What is that? What, what you're doing is you're afraid that if you pray a really bold prayer and then it doesn't happen, then you'll be disappointed and God will be made to be a liar. But the Lord doesn't tell us to do that. He says, come boldly before the throne of grace and ask for whatever you need and I'll give it to you. Don't stress out about, am I in God's will with this prayer? God will tell you. If God's going to say no, what will he do? He will give you enough power and leadership to go the right direction. Right? Paul wanted to go into Asia. He wanted to go in Bithynia. And God said, no, I want you to go to Macedonia. He redirected Paul. Because he had something better for Paul. We're always in submission to the Lord. But the point of this passage is, be excited and bold and out there a little bit in your prayers. Because God has commissioned you into the world to fulfill the works that he's prepared before you. He's anointed you to take the gospel, given you gifts of his Holy Spirit, because you are to advance the kingdom of God in the hearts of men all over the world. So it, to that end, God has said, and you know what? You have permission to request whatever you want, and I'll get it to you. To that purpose. That's why God gave us the, the, the access that we have. So here's my exhortation to you. Test the limits of prayer. Who are people in history that have tested the limits of prayer? I think Abraham, as I just mentioned, with lots, right? He was pushing it. He even said, God, I'm really sorry. I'm going to ask again. Please don't be angry. But what about if there's five? What, you know, what if there's 10 or 25? Or you know, what if there's, keep pushing the number down, down, down. What about Elijah who prayed for there to be no rain? The Lord said, oh, Elijah, I like that. You know what? No rain it is. Do you ever read in the book of Kings of God saying, Elijah, I want you to go tell Ahab that there will be no rain. No, he doesn't. He just shows up and tells Ahab there will be no rain except at my word. And the book of James, it tells us that there was no rain because Elijah prayed. How about that? People who just say, I'm, if this is true, 
Let's go for it, man. Let's get in there and pray. Satan knows this, man. Satan knows that your prayers are the deadly artillery to his kingdom. So he's going to try and pull the plug on prayer. He'd much rather you come to church on Sunday and Wednesday and skip out on prayer at home and prayer meeting. He'll, he's willing to, to take losses in order to protect uh, the, the wall that he's built around your prayer life. Ever consider this? Churches even today but, and throughout history, most of them didn't have Bibles, but what did they have? They had prayer. Most of them couldn't even read. So what do they do in their devotions every day? How do they commune with God? They prayed. They prayed. They sought the Lord. People who have been placed in prison or have been tortured and set apart without their Bible, how can they get by? Because they have the Lord of the Bible living within them, and they have prayer. That's why the apostles, uh, when they were, they were called upon to set up a distribution system for the widows in the church. That's a good thing. But you know what they said? They said, we're going to find somebody else to do this because our priority is to do two things. The ministry of the word and prayer. A pastor's job is just as much to pray as it is to preach. And your job as a believer is to pray and get full of the Holy Spirit daily. So that when you step out of your house, you are prepared with a word from the Lord for whatever is going to come your way. Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. Jesus told this story. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So you ever wonder, but Lord, I prayed and this didn't happen or that didn't happen. He's telling you to pray and not lose heart. That's the point of this story. So here's the story. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him, saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. If you've ever worked in any kind of customer service job, you've had one of these moments. Look, we're not supposed to give you that discount, but if it will get you out of our hair, you can have the discount and leave, right? This is what's going on. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? He says, this guy's an unrighteous judge, and he's willing to do what's right and give what he's asked because he doesn't want to be bothered. But your God isn't unrighteous. He is righteous, and he loves you. Will he delay long over you? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Jesus is trying to teach us and his disciples to always pray, never stop praying, keep coming, even though it seems like you're not getting what you have asked for. He says, keep praying. But he says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus questions it after this parable. He goes, I tell you, if you keep praying, God will answer your prayer. And he kind of goes, huh, I wonder if they're going to believe this one. When I come, will, they, will I find this kind of faith? Spirit, prayer is spiritual warfare. I wasn't even going to go here, but it's a good reminder. The book of Daniel, Daniel starts praying. Lord, it's time to restore the people. Show us what you're going to do, Lord. Three weeks he prays and fasts. Finally, an angel shows up and brings him the answer to his prayer. And he said, Daniel, from the moment you began to ask, Actually, says from the moment you set your heart. So before you even open your mouth, the minute you said, I'm going to pray, God sent me to you. Well, then what took the angel three weeks? He says, but I was withstood by the prince of Persia for 21 days. 
This angel was coming down to bring Daniel's answer, and then a demon came in and fought with the angel and withstood the angel for three weeks, who was holding the answer to Daniel's prayer. He said, eventually, God had to send Michael the archangel to come and fight for me so that I could come and deliver you the message. And it's so funny when you read it. He says, and actually, as soon as this is over, I got to go back and help him out. So do you understand the message? I always picture that archangel, like, fighting with this guy, like, wrap it up, Gabriel! You know, like, he's in the middle of it, you know? So you say, well, God hasn't answered. I've, I prayed for an hour. An hour? Daniel prayed for three weeks. There was resistance. There was spiritual opposition. You ever consider that? That's why Jesus says, keep praying, keep asking, keep knocking, keep coming, because I will answer you. Don't be so quick to resign yourself to the way things are. Prayer is a battle, and Jesus has commanded you to be persistent in your prayers. And that is why John emphasizes the assurance of salvation. You could say it this way. First John was written to build enough faith in the church that they would start praying. I'm not big for stats because you can make stats say whatever you want. But if in the United States of America, if you have 10% of your church coming to your prayer service, you are in the top 1% of well-attended prayer meetings in the country. And if you have a church of 100 people and 10 of them come to prayer meeting, that percentage is the top 1% of churches who come. That means 99% of churches have less than 10% of their people coming to the prayer meeting. That is spiritual warfare. Sometimes you can get hundreds of people to march in the street to get prayer back in schools, but like you can't get hundreds of people to show up for the prayer meeting at church on Sunday morning. Trying to make me feel bad? Well, if you need to feel bad, then you should feel bad. Even Jesus said to Peter, Peter, you can't walk, you can't pray one hour? One hour, Peter? I'm about to go to the cross, bro. Wake up. It's time to pray. So hear that call. Make your life a life of prayer. I can't pray for an hour a day. Fine. Can you pray for five minutes one day? Well, I could do more than five minutes. Okay, how much could you do? I can do 10 minutes. Then pray for 10 minutes a day for three months in a row. Commit yourself for 90 days to pray for 10 minutes a day. That's 900 minutes. I don't know how many hours that is. That's a lot. That's a lot of prayer. And then you, so after a while, you'll be like, I feel like I never have enough time to pray. Well, then bump it up to 15. I'm going to bump it up to 30. Don't do that. Bump it up to 15. Slowly, because then you'll get discouraged when you can't go for a full half hour. But eventually, you'll start to realize, I need way more time than this to pray. Every single time I start upping my prayer life, right? Every single time I, I start spending more time in prayer, I start to see miraculous spiritual things happen in my life. Every single time. I, it, it's like clockwork, and it's my, to my shame that I don't connect the two often enough and persist in it. God starts to give me information about situations before I even encounter them. God starts to bring changes to my life that I never would have seen before. Things that I've been, push, I've been pushing up against in my own flesh for a long time start to give way. Why? Because if you ask, you will receive. If you believe that you are in Christ, you should have the same kind of faith that Jesus had when he prayed. All right? Let's move on to verse 16 now. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Okay. There have been a number of interpretive doozies in the book of 1 John. 
um, where we're like, I'm not entirely sure what this means. Well, we have another one right here. It's fitting that there's one in the last, <laughs> in the last service. So before we get to that, let's just figure out what do we know about this passage. Remember, he's been talking about assurance and how assurance affects our prayer life. Now he's specifically saying what kind of prayer, the kind of prayer that intercedes for other people. Verse 16 tells us that if you see a brother sin, committing a sin, not leading to death, that you should pray for him. Now the ESV writes, and he shall ask and God will give him life. That's an interpretive translation. Literally what it says is, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and he will give him life. I think what this passage is actually saying is that your prayers will save somebody's life. Your prayers can bring life to somebody else. Very cool testament to the power of intercession. It's not wrong to say that God will give him life, but I think that what John is trying to communicate is the power of prayer that we have through Jesus Christ. Prayer is powerful to draw people back to Jesus. Some of you guys have heard of George Mueller. If you haven't, you should go home, download his biography. There's no uh, copyright left on it anymore. You can download it on your computer, your phone, PDF, and read it. You probably could find an audio book on YouTube because it's in the public domain. He was a Christian who, among other things, led an orphanage, famous for bold steps of faith, God answering prayer at the last minute. He picked four men at one point in his life and said, I'm going to pray for each one of these men to be saved. He prayed for the first one. After about a year, the first one got saved. The other three would not get saved. Decades went by. Then George Mueller gets sick on his deathbed. One of them gets sick, gets saved, visiting him on his deathbed. George Mueller dies. The other one, the third one, hearing that George Mueller had died, got saved. The other one got saved at his funeral. Decades of prayer for these people. Persistent, intercessory prayer. And I'm going to tell you a story that affects my life and is actually something that I'm dealing with right now, today. There is a friend of mine, my old best friend from high school back in the day, um, who walked away from the Lord hard. I mean hard exactly opposite direction and I, he completely cut himself off from me and everybody else and I did not hear from him for I think it was almost 12 years that I did not hear a word from this person okay I consistently prayed for him for those 12 years I was praying what you see in 1 Corinthians 5 when Paul says deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his soul may be saved right the Lord if he's running from you, I pray that his life would be devastated so that he would come back to you. About two months ago, out of the blue, I get an email from him. And he says, I think I'm, I'm ready to start, uh, start talking to people again. And I email him back. He won't reply. Finally, he starts texting me. And it was one of those things, like, I would text him, and he wouldn't reply for, like, five or six days, you know. Like, really, very, it's almost like trying to get a deer to feed out of your hand, you know, Right? And uh, finally, he's like, okay, I, th I think I want to I meet up. And he canceled on me three or four different times. Finally, we meet up. I've gone to see him twice now. Man is broken. 29 years old and has lost everything. Every bit of potential he ever had is gone. He, was, he is and remains and will always be the most naturally creative, talented person I have ever met. And he has lost it all. I'm not going to go into the details. But 
he has started telling me, you know, I think I'm ready to stop blaming the church for my problems, and I think, I think I'm ready to start believing in Jesus again. Slowly, slowly, slowly. You guys, I have prayed for him for 12 years. And now, a month before I'm about to leave Lynchburg, God blesses me with the ability to connect with this guy again. Prayer works. I think it was uh, uh, Haddon, uh, not Haddon Robinson, what's his name? Um, who was the Chinese missionary guy? Hudson Taylor. That it is possible to move men for God through prayer alone. Your prayers have the ability to save somebody's soul. I am watching it happen in my life. I actually have watched it happen a couple times, but this is by far the most extreme case. Pray for people who are lost, you guys. Pray for those who are walking in sin. Now, he talks here about the sins that lead to death and the sins that do not lead to death. And apparently, we are under no obligation to pray for people who have sins that lead to death. Notice, he does not forbid us from praying for people who have sin that leads to death, right? He doesn't say, you're not allowed to pray for them. He's saying, you're under no obligation to pray for them. Now, it sounds weird to our ears. So we need to figure out, what is the sin that leads to death? If you look closely at this passage, it does not say. So, we need to be very careful about identifying exactly what John means by this. We do know from verse 17, he says, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. There are some sins that are and some that are not. There have been a number of possibilities put out. Most popular one is that this is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus talked about in the Gospels, right? Every sin will be forgiven the sons of men except the blasphemy of the Spirit. Uh, Second one would be apostasy, right? Somebody walking away from Jesus for good, sin leads to death. Um, Or some people will, any kind of mortal sin, right? Pick the worst sin that you can think of, and people will put that in the the category. Um, But you see, it doesn't say. Uh, It's talking about spiritual death, not physical death, because when John talks about life, he's almost always referring to spiritual life. So we would assume that this is spiritual death here. And when we get into the realm of spiritual death, this is God's domain. So we need to be careful not to be dogmatic about passages that are not very clear. Here's what I would say. The sin that leads to death, and I think this is a very safe conclusion, is whatever sin constitutes that person's ultimate rebellion the final path that they take away from Jesus. So it can vary. You know, uh, a sin leads to death. For one person, you know, I I could say drunkenness would be a sin leading to death because they allow themselves to be dominated by drink until the point that they walk away from Jesus and they reject everything that they ever knew, okay? Does that mean that everybody who's a drunkard is sinning unto death? No. Same thing, homosexuality, I think, is is a very clear example from the book of Romans that somebody living an open homosexual lifestyle is equated to idolatry as somebody that God has given over to their sin. Does that mean that, you know, people who are idolaters or people who are gay can't be saved? No, but I think it tells us in the scripture that for a lot of people, that becomes the sin leading unto death for them. I hope that makes a little sense to you. Uh, He tells us, I'm not saying that you have to pray for that. What does he mean here? I think he's saying your prayers at that point might be ineffective. God would never tell us not to pray for somebody. Well, hold on. The book of Jeremiah, three times God told Jeremiah, don't pray for the people. Jeremiah 7, 16, he says, As for you, do not pray for this people, or lift up a cry or prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. 
God said the same thing in Jeremiah 11, 14 and 14, 11. This is not what John is telling us, but there is precedent in scripture for God saying, you know what, Jeremiah, I've had it. It's over. They've had their chance and they blew it. So stop praying. And John is saying there are people who will reach that point. So, you know, don't feel like that you're obligated to go out and save their soul through your prayers because they may have finally sinned unto death. It is clear from scripture in multiple places that people can come to the point of no return where God gives them over and solidifies their decision to reject him. That's what happened with Pharaoh. Remember, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Fine, Pharaoh. If that's the way you want it, there you go. This is, is happened several times in the Bible with the nation of Israel, with other countries, where God says, I have given them a spirit of deception so that they will not accept me. He says, you walked in idolatry so long, I've given you over to those idols, and I'm not going to save you. That's not fair. Oh, it's absolutely fair. How many sins does it take to deserve the judgment of God? One. God is not under any obligation to show mercy. So the Bible makes it clear that there comes a point in people's lives where God says, enough, and hardens their heart in that decision. We need to be careful when we say, this person definitely is at that point, because you don't know. You don't know when somebody has reached that point. What we do know is that theologically, that can happen. You know, it's like, at what point did Hitler cross that threshold? You know, would God have accepted his repentance? Yes, but that man was given over to wickedness. And you could put any other number of wild, crazy, murderous people. Not everyone's going to be the Saul of Tarsus. And God hardens their heart finally. So all, the, all this to make the point. I'm not, I'm not saying that we should go around identifying that someone has sinned a sin unto death and you should ignore them and never pray for them again. Watch out. That's not what John says. He just says, guys, there, there comes a point it's saying like your, your prayers have the power to save people, guys, but that person still has to work out their salvation with God apart from you. So don't stress about this. This is one of those interesting passages that's connected to a couple other ideas in scripture that are more clearly defined, right? It is clearly defined in scripture that God does give people over to their sin and hardens their hearts. It is in scripture that God has commanded people before not to pray for people. Um, and there are other sin there's a place in scripture where Jesus said that this sin will not be forgiven. So this passage here, sinning unto death, is connected to those very clear ideas. We're not exactly sure how it connects. So I'm just bringing up kind of all the relationships here. Pray through it on your own. See if the Lord gives you any insight. Um, remember, though, you cannot always know when someone is too far gone. But I think John's lesson here is if you're praying for somebody and they're walking in persistent rebellion and walking away from me, don't feel like it's a failure of your prayers. Because that person has to work out their own walk with the Lord and you don't know what's going on in their heart. I realize some of the things I just said may be a little uncomfortable for you. That's okay. We have to let scripture speak and where we're uncomfortable, we need to adjust. Happy to talk with you a little bit more afterwards if you have any questions, but please don't come up with the question, well, what about this person or this friend or this situation? Because I'm not going to presume to know God's mind in a specific situation, okay? Verse 18, we're going to pick up the, uh, the happiness factor a little bit here after that. Verse 18 through 20 is, is kind of John's conclusion here, uh, is John's sum up. He's wrapping it up here, okay? 
He says in verse 18, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So he's kind of reemphasizing the major themes of 1 John, and he's going to use this phrase three times, we know. So verse 18 begins, we know. Verse 19, we know. Verse 20, we know. So this is his, uh, his tripartite conclusion. So if we're talking about the importance of confidence and assurance, what are we assured of? Of what are we confident? These three things here. Verse 18, number one, we know that God keeps us from sin. We've been through this subject over and over again in the book of 1 John. If you are born again, then you are kept from sin and protected from the devil's temptations. And remember, this is not a demand. This is a statement of fact. He's not saying, well, true Christians don't sin, so you better stop sinning. No, he says, hey, guys, we're born of God. God will keep us from sin. Romans chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that this body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Does this imply that we never sin? No. Remember 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. He says, if we sin, we have an advocate before the Father, right? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He's saying our character has been cleansed. And your life now is now an upward scatter graph getting closer and closer to righteousness. You are spiraling closer and closer to the character of Jesus in your life. This verse also reminds us, by the way, of the reality of the devil. He talks about the one who was born of God. It's actually got a fun play on words there. He says, we are those who have been born of God, and we are protected by the one who was born of God, being Jesus. And he refers to Satan as the evil one, the tempter who wants to cause you to sin. But John is saying, you're not the plaything of the devil anymore. You've got the indwelling presence of God to keep you from sin. So you should be confident in the fact that you are no longer a sinner. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Yes, you are. But the more important part of that sentence is the grace part, not the sinner. I'm a saint in Christ Jesus. I'm no saint. Yes, you are. If you belong to Jesus, you are. Well, saints are holy. So are you. Well, how can you say that? Because Jesus said that. I know I'm not, I'm not as righteous as I should be. No, but are you more righteous than you were before you got saved? Or are you more righteous now than you would have been if you were not a Christian? You ever think of what your mirror life would be without Jesus? That's the work of God in your life. So be confident. You are no longer a sinner. Your sin is not a characteristic of who you are. It is a, rem a remnant of a body that was born into sin. You should walk in confident sinlessness. And, of course, the short application is that is don't sin, guys. Okay? Don't need to go any further into that. Don't sin. Verse 19 the first thing we know we know that god keeps us from sin 19 we know that we are from god and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one so the first thing we know that god keeps us from sin second thing we know that we belong to god we are no longer under the world's sinful system which is under the control of satan remember we're not talking about the world as a place that is full of people that God loves, but the world as a sinful system under the authority of the devil apart from God. And John has repeatedly emphasized that difference. And now he says it very clearly. We are different from the world. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
We don't belong to that world anymore. We're not citizens of this world anymore. We're citizens of heaven now. The first thing reminded us of an internal change of character. This is speaking of a change of society, family, identity. We're not like them anymore. And this is not some snobbish withdrawal from the world. And we're so much better than them. Let's just put up gates and never talk to them anymore. It is the joy that we are no longer stuck in a godless world system, which is destined for death and despair and can offer no lasting hope or joy to the people who live in it. And then we're sent right back into it to drag other people out of it. That's what the Lord has commissioned us to do. You used to belong to the devil, but Jesus Christ paid the price, the price of his blood to set you free from your former taskmaster. So be confident of that fact. The world has no control over you. The world has no leverage over you. You don't have to live like them. You're not of the world. You are a child of heaven. Number one, we know that God keeps us from sin. Number two, we know that we belong to God. And number three, verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding, underline that word understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. The third thing we know is that we understand, not the truth, the true one. Isn't that cool? The, the Greek word for truth is aletheia. Here he uses the word aletheinos. So he's not saying that we know the truth. We know the true one, the one who is true. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the truth, and we know him. We understand the truth about God. You ought to be confident because you have hidden knowledge of God that no other religion possesses. It's really funny. When I was in Nepal the first time, we visited uh, Pashpati Temple. It was the Hindu temple, World Heritage Site, all that. And, um, you know, Hindu temple, monkeys everywhere, horrific, heartbreaking things that we saw. And I, I remember just being disgusted, number one, by how filthy it was. Number two, by how heartbreaking and barbaric all of this stuff was. Number three, how hopeless it was. People, you know, want to come to the, these places and, and inquire of these people who are so spiritual and know God so well. And I'm watching these guys, and I'm like, number one, these are all charlatans. They're all stealing money from people. And number two, they have no insight about God. They don't know anything about God that I, that I don't know. Why are their gods any better than any other gods? Look at this. They're, this is filthy. This is disgusting. There's no hope here. And then I get on the plane, and the movie Doctor Strange is the in-flight movie. He goes to that exact temple looking for healing for, for his hands and stuff. I thought it was so ironic. That, and and they, they, of course, shot it really nice and cleaned up the place and did the lighting all cool and make it look really mystical. I'm like, I was just there. And I'm thinking, how could these people write a story? You know, okay, you living in America, you've never been outside, never been to Nepal. You, you maybe could be duped into thinking they know something spiritual about God. So you write your script where he's going to go visit, visit Pashpati Temple. He also visited the stupa that we went to, um, the Buddhist shrine there. But you're going to get there and see everything I just saw and still think that, it's a, that this is worthwhile? There's no other religion has knowledge of God. We have knowledge of God. Why? Because Jesus Christ has come. You know the truth. You know the true one. As we said last week, this is God's testimony, not yours. Well, I've just been sitting and thinking, and I believe, I, listen, I'm, I, all due respect, I don't care what you think, what your opinion is, or what works for that matter. 
Well, it works for me. That's great. It works for you. Is it true? That's all I care about. Well, it doesn't matter if it's true. It absolutely does. Because if it doesn't mean anything, if there is no religious truth, there is no truth to be known about God, then there's no meaning to life other than what I make of it. And I'll tell you, there is lurking in my heart a vicious human being that is only held back by the truth of the gospel. You take the time to think that through. If this, if this is not true, then none of it is true. And if none of it is true, then why am I living my life any way other than what I want to do? But we do know the truth. We do know the truth. And what do we know about him? You, don't, you might not have theoretical or academic knowledge about Jesus, but you know what you do have? You have an experiential family relationship with Jesus that surpasses all so-called human understanding. And there's a great little phrase at the end of verse 20 here. John, of course, is the one in the, in the Bible who writes most clearly, like explicitly out there that Jesus is God. And it's entirely possible that at the end of verse 20, he says it again, right? He says, we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. The question is, is he referring back to God the Father or to Jesus Christ? I think he's referring to Jesus Christ right there. Why? Because he's already called Jesus eternal life in this book. So by tying the two together, he's saying that Jesus Christ is God. And that's what we believe as Christians. Don't ever be slow to answer that question. So you believe Jesus was God? Yes. That's what it means to be a Christian. We worship Jesus. John chapter 20. I'm not going to read the whole story for time's sake. Remember when Thomas, doubting Thomas, wouldn't believe? So I'm not going to believe unless I put my hands in the, in the wounds in his hands. Jesus shows up, says, all right, Thomas, is this what you need? Here you go. What does Thomas call him? My Lord and my God. And Jesus says, so you see and you believe? Believe what? That he's Lord and God. So you believe, but you know what? Blessed are those, Thomas, who don't see and still believe. That's you. We believe that Jesus Christ is both Lord and God. Everything we know, everything life-changing, everything that gives us hope and confidence is tied to the person of Jesus Christ. So number one, we know that God keeps us from sin. Number two, we know that we belong to God. Number three, we know the true one. We know the truth about God. You could put it that way if you want. So how does John conclude? Verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's kind of an abrupt ending, isn't it? Oh, okay. <laughs> the end. It's almost a non sequitur. She's like, wait, how is that related to anything that he was just talking about? There's no farewell. There's no personal notes. There's only just that last thing. Children, keep yourselves from idols. So, real quick, some people then assume, well, then there must have been a, an original ending to 1 John that we've lost. There is no history, no archaeology to support that at all. This is how the letter ended, okay? It's the seventh time he calls his readers little children, right? That's how John writes. He's old. He's a grandpa at this point. He's like, oh, oh kiddos, keep yourselves from idols. Now, here's how we're going to end. Our word idol, the English word idol, is actually a transliteration of the Greek word Eidolon. So Eidol becomes idol, right? So we, we borrowed it from Greek. Now, of course, idol refers to a graven image. But you know what the word literally means? It literally means shade or apparition. 
something ethereal that's half in, half out. So you can see why that word was associated with the false gods, right? Because that's what they believed that the gods were. If you ever read through, uh, you know, the Aeneid or the Odyssey or anything like that, how the gods kind of fade in and out of the story, right? The shades, the apparitions, that's where the word came from. So contrast that to the previous verse. What did he just say? That Jesus Christ is the true one, the only true son of God, the reality, the truth. So he's saying, we have come to know the true living God, the reality that he said in chapter one, we have handled and touched and heard and seen. So kids, stay away from the false shadowy in and out apparitions. You know what's real, so stay away from what's fake. You know what's true, so stay away from what's false. He's like, guys, we have the truth about God. Why would we go anywhere else? And this has been his whole point, right? He's been drawing the distinction between those who follow the, what, is, what is false, what is uh, an idol, and those who follow Christ. So he says, guys, this is who we are, so you know what? Stay away from that stuff. It actually becomes a rather fitting ending to this letter. And it also keeps us from going, oh, well, I'm, I'm not going to worship an idol. I'm not going to bow down and worship something. Yeah. There's a commentator who, who said it this way. It is particularly sobering to realize that John was not writing about the idolatry of another religion. He was writing to Christian readers about the idolatry of fashioning one's own understanding of Jesus Christ that in this case eliminated or diminished the atonement of the crucifixion. What is he saying? Don't create a false image of Jesus in your heart that suits your own lifestyle. Don't build an idol in your heart, whether it's a false Christ or of anything else. How could we? We have the truth. Why would you turn from what's true and then go to something that you made up? If you know the truth, then you should give everything to go after that truth. And that's what I was just saying a minute ago. Remember how I, I said that within me there is a vicious human being lurking? In my days, or those moments where I think to myself, you know, and I always come back to the Lord. It's no, I'm not in any kind of danger here. But when you just have those thoughts like, Am I, what, what if none of this is real? The enemy will come and drop those thoughts. You're not in sin to have those thoughts. You just take them to the Lord, right? And what if none of this is, what if I'm not only wasting my time, but I'm wasting my entire career and all of my potential serving a God who doesn't exist? Now, Pascal, Blaise Pascal, would put out the Pascal's wager, which is, isn't it more worth it to live for a God, even if it turns out that it's not true, than to live for something else and t turn out that it's false? He's right, but my heart goes, no, I don't, I, I'm not playing those games. Either this is real or it's not. God, either you're there or you're not. Either Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead or he didn't. If this is not true, I want nothing to do with it. I'm not going to play some weird cultural game. And in those moments, I catch a glimpse of the viciousness of my heart, which says, I don't care what other people think about me because why should I? I don't care about what people say is right and wrong because if it's not real, they made it up. So I'm going to make up my own right and wrong. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And the anger and the bitterness that is attached to that. But here's the thing, guys. If this is true, this is the most important thing in the entire world. Matthew 13, through 46, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. If this is true, you are no fool to give up everything you have for it. 
And I want to tell you right now, do not degrade your own intellect and your own spirit by doing some sort of halfway thing with Jesus. Either this is true or it's not. It's either the most important thing in the entire world or it means nothing. There is no in-between. Well, it makes me happy. So what? You can take cocaine and be happy all the time if you want. Happiness is easy to find. Well, it just helps me be a better person. Lots of people are good people. There are a lot of bad people in the church. No excuses. Either this is real or it's not. Either I'm going to spend the entire rest of my life preaching this gospel and not caring what anybody has to say other than what's written in this book right here and on my knees praying to the one true and living God or I'm never coming back here again. Those are the only two options. And you know that this is not false. This is the real deal, you guys. If you can be free from sin, free from the world, to know the true and living God, those truths empower you to ask and receive from God in order to save souls and change the world. Why would you go after anything else? That's why I'm, it's like, if, okay, God, you said that if we pray, we ask you anything in your name, you'll give it to us. Yes, okay, I'm going to pray. You said that if we lay hands on the sick, that they'll be healed. Yes, I'm going to go out there and lay hands on some people. You said that if we preach the gospel, some people will receive it and their entire you know, universe will be changed. Yes, I'm going to go proclaim the gospel to everybody I can. That's what these things do if we believe they're true, and they are true. That's the message of 1 John. You are not of this world. You belong to Christ. So maintain that distinction. Stop trying to be like them. They're not going to be impressed with you. I like those shows, too. I like that band, too. I dress like that, too. I go here, too. Who cares? You know that song that we sing, Seek It Like Silver? I wrote that song. And that, that bridge that I wrote where it says, Many are called, but the chosen are few. Cast off the weights and the sin may, that ensnares you. If God may be known, nothing else matters. I got work in the morning. What? I'm so, what? You can talk to God. You can know the true and living God. You have been filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord says, wait upon me. Yes, sir. I'm not going anywhere. That is what the Lord wants from you. That's what we should have. Man, people get radical about all sorts of stupid stuff. There's some people out in, in like California probably or like Oregon or something. They held an all-night vigil for after there was a fishing tournament in the, area, in the area to mourn for the fish who had died. They stayed up all night for fish, for fish, for sport fish. There are people that march in the streets and bang down doors and flip over cop cars and set things on fire and get dragged off to prison for stuff that isn't even real, doesn't even matter. And even if it does, it's only going to matter for a short time, and then we're going to be on to something else tomorrow. People are radical about stuff, and we come to the church, like, well, don't go overboard. Don't go overboard, man. I want to walk on water. I don't want to come to church and then just have a nice little peaceful funeral. Jeez, I want to see the Lord do something awesome with my life. Not because I'm so great, but because God said he was looking for people who will say, Lord, use me. And God says, all right, here we go. Ask for whatever you need and let's go. Well, that, that doesn't mean everything, anything I need, right? I mean, there is value to, to suffering and going without, Lord. God's like, okay, is there anybody else who's just going to take me at my word? Yes, me. Lord, don't use him. He's weird. Yeah, well, he's the only one that's asking. You ever see somebody and the Lord's doing miraculous, great things to them, and you're like, God, why would you use them? 
You ever think that? Their doctrine's weird. Their practice is weird. He does all kinds of stuff that's really kind of shady and strange on the side. Why would you use them? Is he asking? Jesus didn't go to the Pharisees. He went to the docks. He went to the construction workers. He went to the zealots. He went to, <laughs> to Simon the zealot. It's like Jesus showing up and getting a, a, a tax collector and like an Antifa member and putting them in the same thing. He says, I want guys who are radical, John and James, the sons of thunder, go preach the gospel. Hey, they didn't want us there. Can we call fire down from heaven and toast them, Lord? Really, God, this is the one that you picked? <laughs> yes, why? Because they had faith. Peter's like, oh, no, it's a ghost. No, it's Jesus. Oh, what's he doing walking on the water? Hey, can I do that too? Yeah, sure, get out of the boat. All right, and out the boat he gets. That's the kind of people that we ought to have confidence to be in Christ Jesus. That's why John writes these letters. Not so that we can have a nice little systematic system. I love systems. I'm writing a systematic theology, right? I'm all into that kind of stuff. They have it nice and on a bow and put it on the, on the door, and now we're going to have a nice, happy thing. And so that we can go out and get beaten and bloodied in the service of the Most High God. Amen? If God is real, if this is true, and it is, then go for it, you guys. Step out in faith and see what the Lord will do on your behalf.